Good morning, Four Oaks. Pastor Paul, the lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. It's great to be back with you guys. Been, of course, gone for a couple weeks from the land of Luther. Um, 10 p.m. sunset, 68 degree highs. I kid you not, right? You couldn't be with us. That's okay. We're going to be, um, I'm working on a way to, to teach or present a lot of the, the, the material that we did cover on the Reformation in some sort of format. It'll be at the fraction of the cost of this trip, I promise, right? Um, but you won't get the Alps, the food, or the weather. But anyway, nonetheless, um, but today we're going to be in Acts chapter 6. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles there. Before we get rolling, let me just say a few things about Father's Day. Let's be honest, when we think about Mother's Day, Father's Day, Mother's Day, you know, we take moms to brunch at table 23, Father's Day, carry out from Tropical Smoothie. And, and that's no slight on Tropical Smoothie. It's, one of, it's a fan favorite, right? Um, but it does sort of get at this idea that, you know, a lot of times, let's be honest, as dads, we, we dread coming to church on Father's Day because we know it's the time that the pastor's going to sort of dogpile on dad, right? Lower the boom, drop the hammer, um, talk about all the, the ways men have caused problems in the world. And, and let me just say this, first of all, we know um, we can lay, lay a, a fair share of society's ills, the church's ills, at the feet of men, right? Whether it's, it's abusive behavior or toxic masculinity or violence or on the other side just neglect and passivity a lot of these things are ultimately the responsibility of men but just because there have been abuses of manhood doesn't mean that we want to abolish masculinity it doesn't mean that we want to obliterate the gender distinctions like our culture would tell us that we need to do that's like saying just because some might preach and teach in a way that's heretical or untruthful that we need to abolish all preaching. I say no to that, right? Well, in, in, in much the same way, I really want to encourage us as a church family today to do a few things. One, just to pray for our men, to encourage them. Yes, absolutely challenge them. We want to teach and push our men towards the scriptures and who God has called them to be as men and husbands and fathers. But let's throw the accent where the scripture does, let's honor manhood. We believe here that the scriptures have a God-given design for men to display strength and leadership and responsibility and protection and provision, and we do want to celebrate that. And we have a beautiful picture of manhood, of course, here in Acts chapter 6 and the story of Stephen. Now, we're going to use the story of Stephen to kind of launch us off into a summer series that we're going to be doing the next nine weeks called The Story of Israel. So we've been in Romans, obviously, and this is not so much a detour this summer as it is a, as a pit stop. See, because Romans 9 and 10, Paul has left off talking about the plight of ethnic Israel, of historical ethnic Jews, God's Old Testament covenant people. And, and Paul's addressing this sort of elephant in the room that despite all of the key players in the story of redemption being Jews, and that would include um, not just the early church, but of course Jesus, the apostles, even Paul himself, 
But despite this sort of heritage, okay, this strong ethnic heritage of Jews, here in the second generation, when Paul's writing Romans, there's no Jews. Or shall we say very few Jews. It's almost predominantly Gentile. And this would, of course, raise all sorts of issues, right, that Paul addresses. Like, Paul, what's going on? Has, has the word of God failed? Is, are, are, are we seeing sort of a short-circuiting of his purposes and his plan for ethnic Israel? Has the word of God failed? What's happening, Paul? Why, why do we find ourselves here? Why is this the case? And what we've saw, seen in Romans 9 and 10 is Paul gives two reasons for this, okay? Two, two, two answers to this question. First of all, he talks about no, no, no. God's word has not failed. God is sovereign. His sovereign purposes in election will stand. And we spent four or five weeks on this. Well, last time we were together, we saw that Paul gives a second answer to that question. And this is more of an answer that addresses the heart level, okay, of belief and unbelief. And here's what he says in Romans 9. He says, what shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? And here's the key verse. Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. You see, when... God revealed himself to Israel and his righteousness and his holiness and his majesty. Their, their response was, was not to say, whoa, our sinfulness, our brokenness, how in the world could we ever relate to God based upon who he is and who we are? That, that, that wasn't their response. Their response was to view this revelation from God as sort of his seal of divine privilege upon them no matter what they did. See, look, look how awesome we are that God would reveal himself to us. Look how faithful we are as a people for him to, to give us the scriptures. Look how different we are than these pagan nations around us. God must be awfully pleased with us. And so we're going to take this law and we're going to use it as our means of righteousness, as our means of boasting, as our means of distinguishing ourselves from these gosh awful Gentiles. And so what happened is that when God would send his helpers, his prophets, John the Baptist, when he would send his Messiah, preaching a gospel of faith and repentance, right? It was offensive. They, they, they stumbled over the prophets. They stumbled over Jesus. And what we want to ask over these next nine weeks is how did this happen? How did these people who have all the divine spiritual privileges of being children of God set apart, how did they have, take all these advantages and squander them? How, how did they miss the so obvious truth, the so obvious reality that we're not saved by what we do, we're saved by the very grace of God? How could they be blinded in such a way for their need for a savior? And as we look at this over the next nine weeks, not only will this deliver us to Romans 11, where Paul's going to tell us about God's future plan for ethnic Israel, but it's going to teach us something about ourselves. 
because what we're doing this summer is not just doing merely an Old Testament survey or doing a distant abstract look at an historical people from a safe academic distance. We want to see ourselves in the story of Israel because let's be honest, spiritually speaking, we are the Jews. We have been given every spiritual advantage, have we not? Um, you heard the announcement video about the app and the four, I don't even know half of what he was talking about, and I'm not even a boomer, okay? And I said, okay, whatever, it's, sermon's always going, that sounds, I guess, good. We've been given resources at our fingertips. We have teachers, preachers, children's ministries. Our, our children are being poured into at this very moment, thank the Lord, right? So we can be in here in relative peace and quiet while they're being discipled. But we don't want to miss the gospel. We don't want to miss Jesus. We, we've been given his promises, blessings, and we want to continually see our need for our Savior. So we want to see ourselves in the story of Israel over these next nine weeks. Now, to kind of jump us into this series, we're going to do just a little bit of an overview. And interestingly, the best overview we have of the Old Testament in the entire Bible is where? The New Testament, of course, right? It's in Acts 6 and 7. Now, we're going to cover a large amount of text um, this morning. And let me say, I've already done this sermon one time. And because I don't want the Baptist to beat you to brunch, okay, we're going to read selected portions, right, from um, this very long text, this speech from Stephen, which, by the way, is the longest speech, longest address in the entire book of Acts. And so we're going to begin in Acts 6, verse 8 this morning. But before we do, we take a deep breath. Let me pray for us before we dive into God's word. Lord, we're embarking on a journey this summer where what we really ultimately need to see the most is you. We need to see the glory of Jesus. We need to see our desperate need for the grace of Jesus. Father, we need to come to a place where we, we know we are not presuming upon your graces that simply because of who we are, or how old we are, or where we were born, or what our heritage is, or our ancestry, none of these things establish our righteousness before you. Only Jesus does that. Lord, we want to see him this morning. In his name we, that we pray, amen. All right, let's look first of all at the charges that were being brought by the Jewish leaders against Stephen and against the church. Okay, look at Acts 6, verse 8. Let me read those first several verses there. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, this man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth, 
will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw that his face was like the face of the angel, and the high priest said, are these things so? Now, before we work our way through Stephen's response, let's consider um, the outcome of what Stephen says. Because what Stephen says here, two monumental things happen as a result of this speech. Okay? First of all, um, and this is spoiler alert, sorry, 2,000 years, but you should have had time to, to catch up, right? Spoiler alert, Stephen is killed, he's stoned, he's martyred because of this speech. And what happens because of this, um, persecution is unleashed across the church in Jerusalem so that the Jews are scattered, but in that scattering, they end up taking the gospel all across the known Mediterranean ancient world to the Gentiles. And so from this point forward, what we see is this massive influx of Gentiles into the church as a result of this persecution and Stephen's speech specifically. But the second thing that we see happen is that the, the, the window of openness into the heart of the Jewish people begins to close. Now, it doesn't mean that Jews couldn't repent. It doesn't mean they couldn't believe. It doesn't mean that others didn't after them. But what it does mean is there was never a time in the history of the church, even to this day, that there was this level of openness to the gospel. Up to this point in, the, in Jerusalem, the, the entire um, Christian church was, was primarily, almost exclusively, ethnic Jews. But this is a seminal moment because here persecution breaks out and that window of openness um, begins to close. Now, as Stephen is speaking, and of course it tells us that he is a, he's an extraordinary leader, he's bold, he's been performing miracles, and he's brought before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish courts, on two charges. What are the two charges that Stephen must answer for? And in, in this way, he's speaking on behalf of the church. Look at verse 14 um, in chapter 6. These are the two charges. It's a, it's a succinct summary statement. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Two fundamental charges. Jesus and the Christian church and the Christian community are seeking to destroy the word of God, the Old Testament law that was given to us by Moses, number one, and these same Christians are seeking to destroy the temple of God. God's very house, presence that he's established among his people. And in presenting these charges, Stephen is going to respond by giving them sort of an overview of some Old Testament history. And in doing so, what he wants to show them is that it's not the Christians and the Christian church that are misapplying, misunderstanding, and destroying the work of God. In fact, it is them. And we're going to work through this, just some selected verses from this very long address. And, and there's three things, okay, three things that Stephen wants to highlight for them. And these are three things that we want to be, 
want to have highlighted for us when we think about the way God deals with his people. So Stephen's going to talk to them about God's grace. He's going to talk to them about God's sovereignty. He's going to talk to them about God's faithfulness. Okay, so let's start with grace. I'm just going to read these first few verses in chapter 7. Listen to what Stephen says. Brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into that land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into the land in which you are now living. So Israel's history begins with Abraham. And what Stephen is reminding the Jews here of is the fact that God's relationship with them was not based upon the fact that Abraham was doing so awesome in Mesopotamia. He was being so faithful. He was doing his thing that, 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 that God was even blessed to have acknowledged Abraham and given him this privileged status. No, no, no. Stephen's point is to say, God initiated his relationship with you solely out of grace. And we're going to talk about Abraham next week, but remember who Abraham was. He was a moon-worshipping Mesopotamian, right? I've been waiting all week to say that. Moon-worshipping Mesopotamian. He, his children were named after the various gods of Ur and the Chaldees. Abraham was not over here being super faithful to God Abraham was a pagan, but yet God chose him sovereignly out of his mercy and grace to pour his love out upon him. Now, one of the things that Stephen wants to point out to the Israelites that he's addressing is that not only was Abraham saved by grace, but Abraham was also sustained by grace. A lot of times as Christians, we have this view that God's grace is what saves us, but then our work or our obedience is what sort of keeps us in the grace of God. And that is not so, right? Because after Abraham was saved, was called into covenant relationship with God, look down at verse 4 in chapter 7, it says that he did not go all the way to the promised land as God commanded. What did he do? He stopped, he stopped halfway in Haran. Now, we don't know why, and we'll talk, probably try to speculate a little bit about this next week. But here's what I want you to notice in verse 4, what it says happened to Abraham when he decided to stop and not fully obey God. It says, God removed him. Now, that little phrase, God removed him, literally means to carry away as a captive. So, here we are on Father's Day. One of my endearing father's memories, of course, is my dad, unbeknownst to me, unexpectedly sneaking up behind me, throwing me over his shoulder. I want to say hogtie, but that's, he didn't hogtie me. But he definitely threw me over his shoulder, it's what we do in Tennessee, and carted me off to somewhere, right, to, to have fun and to play with me and inflict very minor harm and suffering upon me as a lad, right? This is what, this is what dads do. That's what the word means. God literally wrenched Abraham away from his disobedience of having stopped in the land of Haran, threw him over his shoulder, 
and took him into Canaan. Because one of the things that we want to be reminded of is that our relationship with God never ceases to be about grace. There, there, there's no time in our lives where we're not as completely dependent upon the grace of God um, as we are than when we first began. That it's not just God's grace that saves us, it's God's grace that sustains us, that transforms us, that works in us. We never move past our need for grace. We, we, we never get to a point where we don't need the grace of God. And the reason Stephen wants to emphasize this to the Israel leaders is that they have totally missed that. For them, God's grace was something earned. For them, God's grace was something to um, be accomplished or captured through their obedience. And so he highlights here in the life and the story of Abraham, God's grace. But secondly, let's move on here. He wants to highlight God's sovereignty. So, so drop down here to verse 9, and here we pick up the story with the patriarchs. And the patriarchs, remember the patriarchs being Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, so Jacob and his sons, okay, those are the patriarchs, the sons of Jacob, and the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him to Egypt, but God was with him and rescued him out of all his afflictions and gave him favor and wisdom before Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Now there came a famine throughout all Egypt and Canaan in great affliction, and our fathers could find no food. Now go down to verse 14. And Joseph, who had already been sent ahead, sent and summoned Jacob his father and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. Here's what Stephen wants the leaders to know about their history, here's what he wants us to know. Not only does God choose a people by his grace, but he is the one who sovereignly protects and preserves them. Christian, the reason you're a Christian today, the reason you are clinging to Christ today is that God is clinging to you. God has sovereignly wrapped his arm around you. And here, Stephen is presenting the exhibit one of Joseph and his brothers to show us about God's providential sovereign care of us. Remember, Joseph's brother sold him into slavery. And this was on the heels of God having prophesied through Joseph that Joseph, in fact, was going to be the patriarch of the family. Joseph was the one that was going to rule his family, provide for them, care for them. And they were so offended by this prophecy of the dreams of Joseph, they decided to betray him and they cast him into a pit and they sent him on to Egypt. Here's what the brothers didn't know. What the brothers didn't know was that a famine was coming. What they didn't know was that God wanted to use Joseph as the means to provide for them in that famine. What they didn't know was that God was going to raise Joseph up. They, it appears, right, that they have short-circuited the purposes and promises of God. But yet, and if you know the story, you know this. What does God do? God uses their betrayal as the very means 
of accomplishing his sovereign purposes in their life. And guys, is that not our story? Is that not our story? Can, can, can you imagine what your life would be like, if, what my life would be like, if God saved us by his grace and then said, but now it's up to you. Go figure it out. Go, go, you know, I've saved you by my grace, but you're going to have to live by your own wits. You're going to have to live by your own ingenuity. You're going to have to kind of figure things out. And whatever you do, you do. Whatever you choose, you choose. Whatever the consequences are, the consequences, whatever the fruit are of your choices, it's just so be it. Guys, that's not the God we worship. We worship the sovereign God who not only saves us, but strengthens and sustains us and carries us to the end by his sovereign grace. The Jews totally forgot that. They were there because they had pulled themselves up by their own spiritual bootstraps. They had made a way for themselves. They had set them apart, themselves apart from the people around them. And God said, no, no, no. Not only have I, have I worked my grace in your life, I've worked my sovereignty in your life. Now, here's the third, third thing that, God, that Stephen wants to highlight for them that is particular to God's dealings with his people. And this relates to God's faithfulness. Okay. Now, go down to verse 22 in chapter 7, and, and, and let me read for, for a few verses here. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. When he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brothers, the children of Israel. And seeing one of them being wronged, he defended the oppressed man and avenged him by striking down the Egyptian. He supposed that his brothers would understand that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they did not understand and on the following day, he appeared to them as they were quarreling and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, are you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? Do you want to kill me as you killed the Egyptian yesterday? At this retort, Moses fled and became an exile in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. Now, Jump down here for a second to verse 35. This Moses, we're still talking about Moses here, whom they rejected, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Verse 39, our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt, saying to Aaron, make for us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. It's interesting, isn't it? The power of nostalgia and memories. That the further we get from a, a, an event, uh, the more fondly we are to think about it, right? 
regardless of what the reality was. We think about, oh, that vacation that we took when we were kids and how awesome it was, and it was such a great bonding experience. But yet when you start to rehearse it, you remember, really, that family vacation kind of stunk, right? Because we got lost, and then Dad lost the credit cards, and then the flight got canceled, and we spent 72 hours in the airport, and you come to realize things aren't quite so rosy as we remember them, right? Well, this is clearly the relationship of the Jews to Moses. Guys, Moses was the sin quanon of, of Jewish history. God had sent a lot of helpers to help Israel, okay? But Moses was the supreme helper. All of the arguments and debates that Jesus got into with the Pharisees and the Sadducees, what were they, what was oftentimes the retort? But didn't Moses say this? Didn't Moses say that? Aren't you trying to destroy the work of, of Moses here? What, what is Stephen doing by rehearsing Israel's history with Moses? He's reminding them, you guys never liked Moses. He, 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 you, you come on, guys. Y'all didn't obey him then. You don't obey him now. Don't, don't hide behind this Moses sort of thing, right? You've always, and here, here's the crucial point, You've always rejected God's helpers, Israel. You've always rejected God's helpers. Think about this for a second. Think about all the, the helpers that, that God sent Israel over the years. Elijah, Elisha, Daniel, Joshua, Gideon. I mean, the list could go on and on and on. But there is a distinct pattern with the Old Testament covenant people, right? They stuck their fingers in their ears. Only a righteous remnant were given the capacity to understand, to absorb, to obey, to trust God. Stephen is reminding them, you have the same recalcitrant heart you've always had. You rejected God's servants okay, in the Old Testament, and you're rejecting his Messiah now. And, and isn't it interesting that Stephen quotes this little passage from Moses about how there's going to be a, a prophet that comes after Moses, right? That's going to be greater than Moses. Stephen seems to be saying, here's, here's the prima facie case against you. You say you love Moses. You say you want to obey Moses, but guess what? You've ignored, rejected, and killed the very one that Moses prophesied would come after. Now, what is, what's the point of all this? Where, where is Stephen going? Yes, he's pointing out the hypocrisy. Yes, he's pointing out the hardness of heart. He's pointing out all those things. But I think he's pointing out something equally important to us. And it's simply this. That with God's people, he is faithful even when we are unfaithful. Because even though Israel rejected repeatedly God's messengers, God's helpers, God's prophets. What did God do nonetheless? He continued to send them one after the other. And so ultimately he said, even though you've rejected my helpers before this, I am going to send you my son. Guys, this is a reminder for us, right? That, that even though the, the window of openness on the part of the Jewish people is closing, 
What is Stephen calling them to do? He's calling them to repent. He's calling them to turn to Christ. He, he's, he's calling them to, to turn from their ways to, to trust in Christ through faith and repentance. And it's a reminder for us, okay, that as a, as a child of God, God never stops pursuing you. The day and the window for repentance in the economy of God through his son, Jesus Christ, is always today. And you may say, well, well Pastor Paul, I, I feel like I'm kind of like the Old Testament people. I've claimed the authority of Jesus and the love and the care and the faith, but to be honest with you, it hasn't really served the principal function in my life. I feel like a hypocrite. I feel far from him. It's not what you've done, the gospel tells us, right? It's what Jesus has done for you. And it's what you do next that's most important. To not harden your hearts, but to turn to him and say, ah, oh, but God, I, I know I'm just like the Old Testament Jews. I, I know I have a self-righteousness. I know that I, that I, I harden my heart and I put distance between me and you, but God, I want to see anew your grace, your sovereignty, and your faithfulness to me through Jesus. So those are the three things Stephen wants them to see, wants us to see about our relationship with God in Christ. There's one final thing he wants them to see. And this gets to the heart of the matter. When someone refuses to come to Christ, what is the core, okay, issue in the human heart? What, what is the root of all unbelief ultimately? And here, let me just read a couple selected verses here from, from the end of this chapter. Look at verse 41. He's talking about the Israelites rebelling against Moses, and he says, and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and hear this, and we're rejoicing in the works of their hands, okay? So we don't have time to rehearse this story right now, but Moses went off. He was gone 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites did not know what they were supposed to do. And so they literally took matters into their own hands. They said, we're going to construct a golden calf here. We're going to worship God in our way. Look how pleased God is going to be with us. We, we've, we've taken the initiative. We've come up with some new innovative forms of, of worship here. We've constructed the golden calf, and this is what they were saying. They were rejoicing in the works of their hands. Now go down to verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses, here it is, made by hands, same phrase. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? I'm really indebted to, to Pastor John Piper for his observation in bringing these these two things together because it seems that the things that united the construction of the golden calf and the construction of the temple 
was that in both situations, the Jewish people were what? Rejoicing in the work of their hands. Even up to the present day, I mean, in the, in, in the, uh, uh, the present moment in the text in Acts chapter 7, what was it that the Israelites most rejoiced in? Oh, they rejoiced in the temple. It was glorious. It was mighty. It was a testimony. It was, it, I mean, this is where the real people of God worship, not the rank pagans. In fact, you can't even get near the temple. And they were, and they, and they, this, the, the temple, in fact, had become a point of great pride and of great boasting. Look at what we have done. Stephen brings them up here, I think, because he wants to show that both of these ways are rooted in unbelief. Both of them, constructing the calf, constructing the temple with our own hands, are something we do. Something we take responsibility for, something that we've done, we've earned, we've accomplished on our own. And Stephen seems to be saying, you're missing the point. It's not what you've done for God. It's what God has done for you. Church, that's always, always the root of unbelief. At the end of the day, whether it's someone who says, I don't believe in God, or just functionally acts like an atheist and says, I don't need God, the root is the same. I'm just fine on my own, thank you very much. I, I'm doing, I, I, I would rather have control of my life and call the shots, even though, like, let's be honest, it's kind of a disaster when I do, rather than entrust these things to God. This is a great, this is a point of great humility, isn't it? This is, this is a point of great humbleness where we have to confess, you know, I can't do this on my own. Let me say this, church, and then we're going to close. What, do we, what are we to learn from all this? What do we need to keep in mind as we journey into this survey of the Old Testament this summer? And simply this, the biggest obstacle to you and I receiving the love of God, the grace of God, the gospel of God, it's not our sin per se. Otherwise, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die for us. The greatest obstacle between us and Jesus is not our sin per se. It's our inability to recognize and to admit our sin. That's always the greatest obstacle. It's, it's, it's having a blindness and a hard-heartedness about our sin about our need for Christ that ultimately serves to keep us from him. This was the problem for the Jews. We don't need grace. We're doing just fine. And to say that we need grace means we have to admit something about ourselves, something about our own brokenness, something about our own sinfulness, something about our own hardness of heart, which is why I pray for us this summer that Jesus in showing you the true nature of your heart would show you just how much you need him. See, ultimately what we want to see in the Old Testament is Jesus. 
We want to see our need for Jesus. We want to see the predictions for Jesus. We, need to, we want to see the prophecies about Jesus. We want to see glory, Jesus in his full glory and majesty and have our eyes opened to the awesomeness of Jesus. Now, if it seems like Paul just really puts his finger on this in Romans 9 when he says they pursued a righteousness by the law and not by faith, let's remember who was here witnessing all this go back to the text for a second verse 58 in chapter 7 then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him that was what truth got him and the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet at the feet of a young man named what saul see the reason paul or saul can speak with such great authority and insight into the nature of the human heart is that he was that man. It says that he approved of his execution. And what had to happen for Paul to have his eyes open? The same thing that needs to happen for you and me. A sovereign move of God's grace and mercy appeared to him on that road to Damascus. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And the scales from Paul's eyes dissolved. As I join you this summer, let's join together in praying that the scales would fall from our eyes, that we would truly see who we are, and that that would not lead us to despair, but that it would lead us to Jesus. Let's pray.